You're listening to Necropolis on Hessian Firm. Please visit hessianfirm.com for metal reviews, interviews, analyses, lifestyle articles, as well as releases from the label. Welcome to Necropolis. I am Jason, also known as Lone Goat from Goatcraft. Today's guest is Shelly from Hate Meditations, the website, which uh, reviews a lot of metal and has some interviews on this. Really a great website with objective writing on metal. Um, so if someone wants like an objective bird's eye view of the happenings of metal releases and all that, it's a great website just to uh, read and see uh uh, a website that doesn't really have like adjective heavy, you know, descriptions of music, although there are some adjectives on there. And uh, so definitely worth checking out this website. It's great to have him on this podcast. And the other guests I have is uh, Raphael, the editor of Hessian Firm. Um, it was kind of his idea to actually put this podcast together and get Shelly on here. So I'm really, really happy to have this episode of both individuals. Uh, of course, the topic will be Shelly today on going over um, his backing behind hate meditations and him as an individual. So thank you for being on the show, Shelley. Well, yeah, thank you very much for uh, having me on. And uh, hello from sunny West Yorkshire. <laughs> uh, so you're not in Leeds? I thought you were in Leeds. I am in Leeds, yeah. Leeds is um, in West Yorkshire. It's one of like the main the main cities in Yorkshire. Oh, cool. Yeah, I've, I'm really freaking ignorant when it comes to uh, England, which is kind of <laughs> weird. Like most Americans, they're... They're Anglophiles, like they have this great, you know, they, they view English culture as high culture. So we have uh, Downton Abbey, we have Harry Potter, and everyone knows about the, uh, the royal family there and all the happenings with that here in America. So uh, it's kind of interesting that we have, you know, an English guy on this podcast. This is the first international necropolis episode. So uh, thank you for being on the show. And we also have Raphael from Portugal. Yeah, that's right. Thank you for being on the show, Raphael. Yeah, thank you for, for having me, for having us. Of course. So let's kind of start with uh, Mr. Shelley as a writer and a person. So I know he has a background in philosophy. Um, how has that benefited other aspects of your life outside of philosophy? Uh, that's a good question. Um over the years, I've really been sort of wondering about that because the stereotype of a philosophy graduate is that it has very little sort of practical application when you're sort of finding work and stuff. And, you know, to a large extent, that's true in that it's, you know, in terms of like finding work, it's just as valuable as any other humanities degree in that they're not really checking for your in-depth knowledge of the subject and more just looking for the fact that you can, you know, do a degree for three years and, you know, meet certain deadlines and do work to a certain standard. But then um, since I've, I've left uni about 10 years ago and over that time, I've been thinking more and more about what I've learned and what I apply. And it's really just, it's more, I view philosophy more as an activity rather than a body of knowledge in the, uh, you know, anyone from any profession should study the ideas of certain philosophers and traditions because I really think it enhances the understanding that they have of their profession, whether they're an engineer, an artist or anything. And um, I think, yeah, it's something that has value even when you sort of you don't expect it to or you realise you're applying these ideas without necessarily realising it. Um, and yeah, that goes for 
what I write about, but it also goes with how I approach life in general as well. That sounds like the, the original concept of philosophy, you know, um, as a way of life. Yes, I think it was founded, you know, Socrates, more of like a, a sense of wonder that was expounded upon, especially the pre-Socratic philosophers were like that, just wondering about reality and, you know, how humans operate and all that, and eventually it sprang into such a, a dense subject that it is now. And Shelley's definitely correct that uh, there is kind of like a philosophy to everything. There's a philosophy to music. There's a philosophy to science. You know, science itself is a subset of philosophy. So it's great that, you know, he's seeing the correlations to other aspects of life, which may not be immediately apparent for the average philosophy student, but as time progresses, you start making the different correlations. And one thing I noticed is a lot of original ideas, quote unquote, original ideas that I thought I used to have, you know, it turns out other people talked about this crap, you know, hundreds of years ago. So uh, it's definitely great to actually read, you know, the, the master's of philosophy and, you know, expand your own outlook a little bit. Yeah, and I think it's something that becomes more important the more the older you get and the more you experience life. Like if I had my time again, I might have studied something else just because when you're at, when you're at uni and you're in your late teens and early 20s, you're not really experienced much of life. And um, so you're not, you don't really feel like you've got, you can ground some of the ideas in philosophy with much, you know, real world experience. Whereas the more I think about it now, the more, some of the ideas that I studied, I feel like they apply or they could, you know, help in certain circumstances, but also you approach the ideas in a bit more of a measured way, the older you get as well. Yes, I certainly agree. Like, you know, when you're young, you get in philosophy, you just want to eat it all up and you want to, you know, get obsessed over, you know, aspects. Like I've seen so many people get obsessed over Plato's forms and things like that. But what what is the real world application to Plato's forms? Um, it's kind of hard to actually pinpoint that because it's very abstract. Yeah, and also you, when you're young, you tend to want definite answers. You want to say like, ah, right, I've read Plato's forms, that makes sense. I've solved philosophy. And then you just read a bunch of criticism of it or people that have had other different ideas. Um, and you kind of, it's frustrating at first, but you kind of learn it's more of a more of a process that you'll never really reach an end goal. But the you know it's that cliche of like the journey is the goal. But that's something to it's really hard to grasp when you're younger. But as you get older, you realize that it's just it's an ongoing evolution. Yeah, and your backing of philosophy was epistemology, which is the um, kind of like the knowledge area of philosophy, where you kind of separate opinion from fact. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, sort of modern epistemology started with Descartes. Um, I think, therefore, I am. And then sort of all of at least the European philosophy has kind of just been a debate around the ideas of Descartes. So it's um, more of like a rationist type of... Yeah, yeah. Rational. Um, and that's... It's one of those areas of philosophy that people tend to roll their eyes at because it is incredibly... Well, I guess people call it pedantic because you just end up sort of splitting hairs over what what language is actually capable of in terms of describing our experience of reality. Um, and yeah, you can get to a point where you just wonder <laughs> what application could this possibly have? But it is interesting, especially when it's applied to certain things like the scientific process or mathematics and formal logic as well. Um, but yeah, it's 
been a while since I've looked at those ideas in great depth, but they, they do crop up now and then when I'm thinking about things. Very, very cool. And I hear a kitty cat. So. Yeah, just one second. Sorry. Oh, it's fine. No worries. I can definitely have a the guest cat on the program. So it's great that you got into philosophy. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more in the podcast. Um, I know that you are a voracious reader. Um, what kind of content do you like to read? You know, just in your own leisure. Um, in my own leisure, uh, when I was younger, I would read a lot of like what they call the classics. So, you know, uh, Tolstoy, Chekhov, Dickens, that kind of stuff. Um, moved away from that in recent years. Um, my wife's father sort of, he's been clearing out all of his books and he's got a ton of like old school sci-fi stuff, sort of short stories, collections, um, which some of them are, you know, they're quite cheesy. Have uh, you ever read, read Sheckley? Lot- Sorry? Have you ever read Sheckley? He was an old sci-fi writer. Uh, I might have done. It's just so many sort of anthologies of like a ton of writers. Um, I don't always necessarily remember the names, but um, he might have been a name that's cropped up. But yeah, read a lot of that. Um, try to read some history as well, some nonfiction. Uh, just, yeah, just whatever comes my way, really. Interesting. And so I'm, I'm assuming when you were younger, you were mainly into philosophy for what you read? Uh, chiefly, yeah. So where I studied philosophy at um, Leeds, and uh, that's um, it's what we'd call analytical philosophy. So it's very kind of um, formal um, sort of arrangements of what you know the limits of language are and formal logic and epistemology and philosophy of mind. And that's sort of contrasted with continental philosophy, you know, your, your Sartres and your Nietzsche's. Um, and I would read that latter school as like, things in my spare time because we didn't really study them formally. So I never had a sort of formal module on, you know, Heidegger or the existentialists. Um, that was more something we do in our spare time to sort of read around the subject um, and then go and study like formal logic and epistemology in, in lectures. Very, very cool. Yeah. I noticed even in a American university, like I just studied business in school and it was real world application, like, um, my specialty was bombs and missiles in the military, which I tried to work for a weapons contractor after that, but ended up working for the army a little bit, but ended up going to school. And now it's just like, I just need a freaking business degree, something to fall back on this. Like, I, I love philosophy, but like you said earlier, like there's not really much application for that degree itself other than like teaching philosophy. Yeah, and I did. I did think about uh, going down that route as well. Like I did a, I did a postgrad as well, um, but that was more sort of to put it bluntly, or being honest with myself, that was more because I didn't really know what I wanted to do after I finished uni. Um, so I thought, well, I could continue on doing a master's, and then I'm sort of on the cusp of even putting a PhD together. But oh. I just got to the point where. I wasn't quite sure if I could do it. I was getting quite sick of academia. I wanted a real job. Uh, I was getting sick of, <laughs> you know, living very hand to mouth as you do when you're a student. And uh, yeah, I just ended up speaking to someone who said PhD is the kind of thing that you, you do if you can't physically imagine yourself doing anything else. It's sort of, you know, your calling, I guess. And I, I was thinking, well, I'm sort of half in, half out, so I can't risk starting it and then having to drop out. So I'll start just working, just got an office job for a year and then sadly never looked back. Uh, 
but it's something I still love to do in my spare time. So very, very cool. Yeah. It's always great to revisit, you know, philosophical subjects at least. So you can, you know, keep broadening your outlook. So it's probably boring people about philosophy a little bit. I'm sure we'll get back to it later, but, uh, Let's talk about UK metal. Like you have a firsthand experience being in England. So I know in extreme metal, there's Napalm Death from there. There's Carcass, Bolt Thrower. There's even Cradle of Filth, which is kind of like creepypasta uh, influenced by uh, Iron Maiden. What are some of your favorite uh, UK bands? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a mixed legacy, isn't it? Because on the one hand, we've... Uh, I want to say, given the world cradle of filth and venom, I don't know if the world will be thanking us for that. But um, on the other hand, yeah, those bands you mentioned, like Carcass, Napalm Death, Bolt Thrower, they they were very sort of like flash in the pan. They had a handful of albums that I really, really hold in high regard, um, but they never really had the staying power of their European or American counterparts in terms of quality. I think uh, for my sort of taste in uk it's more kind of the the left field stuff so things like um godflesh um God i really Flesh. really yeah i really really enjoy i know like um some of his later stuff went a bit sort of groovy or even new metal but yeah, a new early stuff, Jetsu, like, yeah like i love the uh, street cleaner it's a, a classic even cold world after that is you know yeah me too street cleaner mainly yeah yeah i really really, really love that and it's kind of it sort of feeds into kind of other you know, non-metal influences like in, in industrial and almost like goth rock as well, to some extent. Yeah, Tool was as well. really influenced by Godflesh. You can hear it, like Godflesh did it better, of course, but Tool, a really popular band from the US, they were very influenced by Godflesh, oddly enough. But uh, yeah, cool. definitely. Um, so let's get into uh, Hate Meditations, your metal website that I think you're the only writer for. So uh, when did you start writing about metal? Like, what publications? Um, I've always written, uh, well, tried to write stuff in my spare time, um, normally sort of reviews and things. But I started Hate Meditations in 2017, and uh, it was really, it started out as like a personal diary. It was just a way for me to organize some thoughts I'd been having on metal at the time. I was a bit disillusioned with things because in the UK at the time, what was really big was uh, Stoner, Stoner Doom, which has a big following outside of metal as well, because it has that sort of common roots with like blues and heavy rock that non-metal heads really kind of vibe oh, with. Sabbath. Um, like Sabbath is from there, so I can see how... Yeah. Yeah, and the sort of modern bands like Electric Wizard and Uncle Acid and the Deadbeats and stuff. And that's kind of, a lot of those kind of bands were what were playing locally. And I was getting bored with it and sort of thinking about, you know, the kind of metal I used to listen to when I was younger, you know, sort of the classics of black metal and old school death metal. And yeah, it just started out as a way for me to kind of process some of those thoughts. And then I said to myself, I'm not going to start reviewing stuff because I can't keep up with new releases. So I started sort of writing about the older albums and I started like a, a sort of weekly feature where I'd take two classic albums from similar style, a similar era, and I'd just compare them. I'd sort of do a semi-review, semi-comparison to kind of... Yeah, semi-boxing match between the two, because you usually have a victor. Yes, and I kind of said to myself, I would 
I would never say it's a draw, even if the albums are really, really closely matched. I would always come out, even if it's just a personal preference and it's not me saying this is absolutely the best one. But yeah, it turned into a kind of, not just uh, reviews, but kind of an attempt to do like a, a history of extreme metal from the point of view of the album specifically. And then everything changed uh, when um, a guy from La Caverna Records in Colombia got in touch. Um, David Avila, if I'm mispronouncing that, I do apologize, David. But um, he got in touch because he was releasing a new album by a band called Condor, who are sort of... Yeah, I know Condor. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're really into... A, I met the... Well, I talked to the guitarist a few years ago, just on Facebook and... I'm kind of a rabble arouser online, so I kind of rubbed him the wrong way. But uh, I remember I talked classical music with him, and something about uh, I started writing. It's like, well, Grieg's piano concerto is just a rip off of uh, Schumann's piano concerto, <laughs> and it it was like, well, he deliberately tried to write it in the same thing. You know, just he seems like a cool dude but yeah i haven't talked to him in some years but yeah well, Cond um, condor is a cool band yeah that also that classical influence does bleed through because they're kind of like deaf tune but they do have some almost like baroque elements to them as well um it's really interesting what they're doing but yeah they had their latest album coming out on la caverna and uh yeah, David just sent me that he sent me an ep by a finnish deaf metal band called sadistic drive as well um, and uh, Street Cannibal Gluttily, and he just said, would you be interested in doing some reviews for these? And it was the first time someone had got in touch to say, like, I've been reading your you know, website for a while, and it's interesting, and um, here's some new releases if you're interested in writing. I was like, yep, absolutely. And then it kind of just spread from there. So obviously David shared it around, and that was when I realised that I had sort of something of an audience because... In extreme metal, like the nature of it is your audience is always going to be somewhat limited in numbers. Um, and if you're trying to write um, to a certain, I don't know, trying to sort of communicate quite obscure ideas, that kind of limits the audience even more. It's, you know, the, the reviews I was writing were not trying to be like, this album's awesome, this riff's killer. I was trying to go a bit more in depth. Yeah, and that's what I was, uh, I wanted to bring that up a little later. It's like your objective writing on it. It's very descriptive and cuts through the surface that a lot of other sites focus on. Like, like I said, being adjective heavy, um, you know, just kind of just throwing all these little adjective descriptors there without actually analyzing the music itself in a meaningful way. Um, so it's really great that you're able to do that objective writing side of that, that objective take. Yeah. Um, it's something that I enjoy uh, in reading reviewers um you know present company included and i've read some great reviewers just random people on like metal archives and stuff but i did find that there was a real like absence of that in extreme metal in recent years and i thought well maybe there is a bit of a gap because you know there's a lot of fans out there that do appreciate this music on a sort of deeper level and i'm not saying like i always live up to the standards that i i set for music writing but it's something that i always aim for and i think when la caverna got in touch it was when i started to reach an audience that um would be interested in that um and actually you know really vibe with it and obviously like i said it's always going to be a bit limited but i think you know the people that do read it they do often say like it's it's filling that kind of niche 
um, away from you know what you'd see on more mainstream sort of metal websites and stuff. Yeah, well, a kind of parallel that draws, of course, I, I, I think you're obviously aware of the old site, uh, anus.com, the American Nihilist Underground Society, which is the silliest name for uh, what that website used to be. Um, which, you know, I had a foray with that. When I turned into deathmill.org, I wrote for them like 2013 to like 2000. 15-ish under a, a pin name, but I just wrote about metal, but what, you know, Hessian Firm, which Raphael comes from, he wrote for a DMU briefly. Um, we, we just got sick of all the, the politics. I just wanted to correct, um, I didn't get to write for DMU. I started with, um, with Hessian Firm. Oh, really? Oh, I must yeah, um, the person who wrote for DMU was uh, Nick from, also from Hessian Firm. Yeah, Nick and Sveen, um, they wrote, um, interesting, I thought you were part of that. <laughs> you're, you're no, actually, just I'm a, kind of a latecomer, I guess. Yeah, it's great that you're the editor of Hessian Firm, you're very insightful, um, so I'm sorry for fudging that, I thought you were involved at one point, but uh, but anyway, we got kind of tired of uh, the, I know Nick got tired of the uh, the cigar reviews and you know, did entombed get their name from a video game and all of that it wasn't the, the politics mainly yeah i wasn't going to mention the anus in the room but that was when i i mean that was the website that got me into a lot of like got me into burzum got me into summoning got me into morbid angel like i this was in sort of the mid 2000s um i grew up in quite a rural area of the country um no one else that I knew listened to even metal, let alone sort of extreme underground metal. And yeah, I found that website and just the, yeah, the reviews were like nothing I'd ever read before. And I, I would be lying if I said that there wasn't quite a lot of influence there in my own writing, but yeah, like yourself over the years, I got tired of the way it was written and I got tired of reading tobacco reviews and, some really surreal posts that weren't really related to anything. And I've just thought we could take, take the best of that, take the hardcore musical analysis and just move yeah. away from some of the other stuff. Well, I think it was like 2013. I had actually known uh, Prozac, the main guy behind it. Um, he also went by goat online, but uh, we actually had a falling out and a real life drama, you know, it was really, really stupid shit. And I was kind of kept pounding it on, pounding it on. And, he wanted to drop it, but I couldn't drop it. So we had a falling out and like he had me on this is like 2013, 2014. He had me as like the admin on his social media. So I actually kicked him from it. And I started posting all these stupid memes and, you know, I, I took over his social media pages after I left and, uh, you know, I gave it back to him because it's wrong for me to do that. But I just did it briefly. I just posted a whole bunch of stupid memes like long live the goat, you know, RIP DMU. And it's really stupid pictures there. And, you know, I gave it back to him. So um, as time progresses, we really haven't talked to each other in like two or three years. Uh, occasionally, I'll just send him like a, a blank email with a, a band to check out or something like that. But he hasn't responded it's kind of sad. Like I really respected his writing like you did. Um, because when I was a teenager, when you used to Google or Yahoo, a band like morbid angel, uh, the anus.com came up first and you would have all those reviews there and it helped expand my, uh, my death metal intake, certainly with all the bands that were on there. But it seems like the, for a lot of people in our sphere, 
we kind of start out with anus and, you know, DMU and just kind of branch out and end up, you know, leaving that in like the, the rear view mirror, but also keeping that with you a little bit. Um, so I know you also wrote for, uh, was it hessian.org or .com? Uh, yeah, I think I sort of lost track of the way the website started splitting out because there was lots of like sister websites, some more dedicated to politics, some more dedicated to music. But uh, yeah, I stopped following it probably in the early 2010s. Oh. Um, and I haven't really looked back. But as you said, like, I can always tell if I come across a reviewer online, I can always tell if they might have been influenced by him because there is a certain style that sort of comes out in other people's reviews that you just see anuses hands all over it oh yeah he has a very distinctive yeah, i agree I, and i felt that when i when i first came across your site i think it was in probably two years ago uh, and i could see the the mark so to speak of anus <laughs> <laughs> yep all right um, next subject um so bands featured on hate meditations are more relaxed than like bands on anus. Like there's no gatekeeping there. Um, stuff that, you know, the, the anus crowd would quote unquote bash or, you know, something like that. You're more, much more relaxed with what you'll feature on there. I know like, um, like the anus crowd never really liked uh, hate forest and he actually wrote them a, a positive review. So can any band send you a promo and expect a write up? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, at the moment, um, I get sort of fairly regular sort of requests for stuff or else I'm just uh, trawling new releases and stuff that I find interesting. Like if it's something that I absolutely detest or I find really, really average, I normally just pass over it because I don't think there's much point in me sort of, you know, just bashing someone online, an underground band online for no reason. So it's normally stuff that I, you know, find interesting that I'll review. And if someone's taken the time to write in with a new release, then I'll always try and I'll always try and um, do it justice and give it like an in-depth analysis. And most of the time, the feedback's really positive um, uh, because I tend to try. Well, I try and go a bit deeper than uh, your average, as you said, sort of just descriptive um, descriptive writing. So yeah, anyone can anyone can send in uh, material. I've had to go back to people before and say it's not they'll send me sort of wacky progressive rock or something. And it's not that I don't like progressive rock. It's that it's, I don't really have the vocabulary for it in the same way that I would uh, a metal release. Like I do branch out into ambient territory and uh, neo folk sometimes, but I'm always sort of, you know, grasping for language when I'm reviewing something a bit out of my comfort zone. I told you to write about a Russian hard bass, which is actually taking off really really big lately it's kind of crazy like i know they're influenced by pop and rap a little bit but there's some melody and stuff going on in russian hard bass so it'd be interesting if you ever make your way around to that to see your take on it yeah i mean it, it, yeah i listened to some of those tracks that you sent me and i did enjoy it but um i see my uh i've got an older brother and that's kind of his thing is electronic music he loves all of that um so i imagine he'd be really into it but for me it's kind of I'm familiar, vaguely familiar with different kinds of like dance music and electronic music, but I don't feel like I'm the right person to write about it just because I can't can't contextualize it in the same way. Whereas if someone comes to me with a metal release, I can in instantly spot, you know, it's influenced by this tradition or these bands. There's, you know, 
an element of this to it as well. I can immediately sort of position it within the history of what's gone before, but yeah. Well, you wrote about Dungeon Synth. I remember that. <laughs> yes, I did. Um, great. I love that. I just love the reactions you got from that, even though you might not have seen it. Um, uh, I know this guy from uh, the Project Cond, which you featured on Hate Meditations, and uh, he, he shared one of your reviews of his music versus, like I guess, like the, the Britney Spears of Dungeon Synth. And it got a lot of hate. It was just hilarious watching um, all the the people criticizing you. It's like, oh, this guy just hates Dungeon Synth. Why is he writing about it? And when in reality, it's like you never said that you hated the music. You just objectively looked at it and described it. Well, I really like Kant, which is why I picked him to review. And I, I was, this was, again, as a part of my you know, picking two albums of a similar style. So I just went on a, I think it was a Bandcamp post with a list of sort of, you know, popular Dungeon Syntax. And I request, I just selected one at random, Sequestered Keep, to compare to Khand. And it was exactly what I expected. The Khand album, um, Fires of Celestial Ardor, is amazing. I really like Khand as a project. Um, and the re... <laughs> The reason I kind of laid into Dungeon Synth so much is because I held up Khan as like, here's what it could be if it's done with a bit of creativity and imagination. Um, and a lot of Dungeon Synth is, it's a little bit like stamp collecting in that you have these artists that release 20 albums all on cassette over a span of five years or something. They all sound roughly the same. They might have one or two good like hints of an idea here and there, but there's not really any point to it other than for people to say I'm into this really obscure genre and I collect all of these things. And it's a bit like a, yeah, there's you know, oversaturation. People are just trying to get that aesthetic of like medieval fantasy um, music and like really simplistic takes on it um, mm. and just package it as this true underground, like offshoot of black metal. And it's just yeah. really strange, like how it's, you know, just grown into this, gargantuan mass of indirection um so yeah i definitely agree 100 with your article on dungeon synth and i'm glad that you used con as an example of where dungeon synth could go i really consider stuff like a kind of like a fantasy ambience more than that dungeon synth term I'm sure he would probably agree with me on that, but there's just this like anyone can put together some dungeon synth you know some scales and chords and you put in some medieval instrumentation there. It's like have, you know, something like uh, castles and dragons and your song titles and boom, it's like you're a, f- a freaking successful guy in this little subgenre of randomness. Almost. Well, this, is the, this is the thing as well, because it's mostly based on like the first few Mortis albums. And Mortis, you, you can kind of hear that he can't really master the keyboard on those early works, but, you know, people say that's what gives it its charm. And that's true to some extent, but you can't replicate, like, a mistake in that way. You, you <laughs> If you're going to be making music to a certain quality, you can't deliberately make it twee or, you know, amateurish if you're actually a good musician. Well, and Glenn Danzig of- did it too. He did a little Dungeon Synth album. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've not actually listened to that. I know it exists, but I've not it's not that it. bad. I mean, it's cheesy as fuck, but much like a lot of Dungeon Synth is. But yeah, he had his foray into that. I think it was like the in the 80s he did that. 
So you might yeah. bring Ortiz. I wouldn't I be so harsh on Dungeons. They try to be cheesy on purpose most of the time. Mm. Well, that's the thing. I wouldn't be so harsh on it if I didn't think that there was real potential there, because there is real potential in that just medievalist fantasy ambient. It can be quite stirring. Like yeah, I agree. Um, um, did you ever listen to Secret Stairways? I think I sent it to you. Yes, I did. Yeah. Did you see um, what I was kind of hinting at there, where he was like an outlier? Yeah, you can definitely, when you hear that next to sort of more standard sort of dungeon synth stuff, you can definitely hear the difference in not just like literally, but also the the intent behind it as well. Yeah. It seems more like an honest expression. Yeah, definitely. From what I get from that. So what have you learned from launching your own website, you know, expanding your reach? I know you expanded your reach a little bit when you criticized dungeon synth. Um what are some of your long-term goals um, from the things you've learned from hate meditations? Um, that's an interesting question. I'll tell you what I've learned is, um, like I said, when I started it, I was kind of drifting away from metal and a bit disillusioned by it. But since I've been reviewing newer releases and uh, getting sort of getting back in touch with what's, what's on trend at the moment, um, and what labels are doing interesting sort of really putting out interesting work. Obviously there's like Hessian firm, uh, but there's a few others as well, like uh, Caligari records, uh, purity, few fire, blood harvest, a few others that are sort of, they're not always, not everything they put out is a banger. There's lots of still kind of old school, you know, old school black and trash or old yeah. school death metal, that kind of stuff. But it is rewarding when you pick out something that's genuinely interesting. And I think hate meditations kind of forces me to keep a, keep a finger on the pulse in that yeah. way. And I, I saw yeah. that uh, you're a big supporter of, you know, some Hessian firm releases, especially that Mephitis. So uh, what are your thoughts on Mephitis? Well, he, um, Pendarf of Mephitis actually got in touch with me before I was aware of Hessian firm. It was just after they were putting Ember Dawn out. Um, and he got in touch, said, I've been reading your website for a while, kind of hinted that he could tell that I was a graduate of anus.com. <laughs> but he said, I think you'll enjoy this album. Then he sent me Ember Dawn. And yeah, I was, I wish I could review that again, because I don't think I did it justice at the time. I was a little bit like, this is one of the best extreme metal albums I've heard in the last decade. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to share it with everyone. Um, so yeah, when the when the latest album came out, I was also I was kind of nervous because I thought I sort of view reviews as a sort of form of artistry in itself. In that these musicians they pour their heart and soul into what they do, and what they do deserves you know your full consideration, and you need to do it justice in your writing. Um, and obviously like, you know, it's a completely separate, you know, form of art, but it needs to sort of hold to certain standards, especially when you're met with a band like Mephitis. So, but yeah, I can't really put into words beyond what I put in the review that they are probably one of the most interesting extreme metal bands going today. Well, I, I, I definitely agree that they're interesting with the uh, off scourings album. Um, they kind of, assimilated some avant-garde 
type of influences in there where uh, it's almost to the point in some of their music where it's not even metal anymore. It's just, you know, they, they have that proggy element and it just keeps progging itself to the point where you have to listen to the songs over and over and over in order to uh, get a great understanding of where the, the compositional um, outlook comes from, which is very proggy and, you know, so, like I said, there's some avant-garde elements in there. So I, I think they're like the opposite of uh, a Transylvanian funeral, which I know you reviewed in Temple of Braxis, where he's just about, you know, catching music, you know, almost instant gratification. Um, Mephitis is the opposite. Uh, it's by, uh, by no stretch are they bad whatsoever. They're a really great band, but they're more heady. They're more brainy. Um, for the guitarists out there will love what they're doing for people that want instant gratification and might rub them the wrong way. But it's kind of interesting that they do have their own unique take on extreme metal and they're able to do it in their own manner, um, which is testament to when uh, metals become so freaking oversaturated that they, they do have their own take. So that's kind of the the feeling that I get from Mephitis. I know Hessian Firm released it and seems to be doing really well with uh, people ordering it and all yeah. that. Um, yeah, so in my review, I made a lot of how ambiguous the album sounds because, some, you know, like you mentioned, the Transylvanian Funeral, um, who are also like great black metal act, but they sound sort of classically evil and classically gothic. They've got a really kind of... Um, I'd want to say authentic, but also quite a traditional sound. They do a lot of creativity within that, but it's very clear the kind of tone that he's trying to get across. Whereas with Mephitis, it's sort of twisting and turning and angular. Um, and it's sort of shifts between major and minor and, you know, chromatic kind of movements that are very kind of, you're not really sure what you're supposed to be feeling. I wouldn't call it musician's music necessarily, but as you I said, would, I would, um, I would, uh, yeah. I, I, the feeling I get off of it is like a, you're talking to like a music professor who actually knows extreme metal. That's the kind of feeling I get from a fighters. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I, I don't know. Cause I'm not a, I'm not a guitarist. Um, I'm only sort of an amateur musician. I'm nowhere near the standard of, you know, the bands that I review, but I know a bit of music history and I can sort of sense the sort of reference points and the touchstones that they're kind of um, using within their music. But even then it is, yeah, you're right. It's a dense work to unpack. And it took me, you know, several listens to kind of, you know, separate out the different elements that they're putting together. It's sort of really kind of multidimensional stuff that they're doing. Yeah. So that, that, that in itself might be why it goes over some people's heads. Um, yeah. where you have like the, the A Transylvanian funeral, just to compare the two, which is very simplistic, primitive music, but it's catchy. It, it you know, it releases the endorphins in the brain immediately because you know it's primitive and good listening music. Whereas I guess if we were to compare the two, like a Transylvanian funeral is like a really sturdy raft out in the ocean. And Mephitis is like a speedboat just zooming all over the place. Well, I was going to make the comparison between good death metal and good black metal. I know that Mephitis make a point of saying we're not either one, we're dark metal. But a lot of the 
takeaways I get are more are closer to like really good death metal, like Atheist Unquestionable Presence or Legion albums like that, where they're sort of like um, complex machinery with lots of different moving parts. Whereas black metal kind of hits more at the soul. It's much more atmospheric kind of immersive experience. I always find like good death metal is quite intellectual in a way. Uh, and that's kind of how Mephitis always hit me as more food for the brain, as it were. Yeah, I can see that. Definitely food for the brain. Um, but yeah, they're, they're cut from their own cloth. Like I know like some of their influences, like at the gates and things like that. Oh, and especially the, the proggy aspect where they, there's like this continual development in their music where like it's the, the epitome of narrative death metal um if you get what I'm, what I'm saying with that like i know like the anus crowd and all that we're all about narrative death metal and if i just succeeds on that 100 percent um so it's kind of interesting like i think people are going to have mixed reviews about that band um i've heard you know from my own friends who've listened to it mixed reactions but i can definitely say it's not bad whatsoever and musician musicianship is top notch um mm-hmm but it might be going over some of their heads. So, um. Yeah, I played Ember Dawn to a few friends of mine that are really into sort of, you know, their death and black metal. And they said this would have been uh, like a classic if it was released in 1992. It would have. It would have been, but I was trying to say, well, it's continuing on from that, that golden age of like death metal. It's sort of carrying on in a way that other you know, so-called old-school death metal bands are not really doing. They're just kind of aping certain, like, characteristics at a superficial level where the fighters are getting to the bottom of it. But as you said, it, it kind of, they were a bit nonplussed. They were like, yeah, it's good old-school death metal. Can't really say much more than that. And I was like, ah, you missed the point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you definitely missed the point. If you just compartmentalize it like that, which I, I would say they're very far removed from old-school death metal. I mean, they have the a lot of the uh, the elements of it, but they've done their own thing with it, which I think um, people, it may take some some time for people to see what they're doing um, and all of that. So I'm, I'm glad we were able to touch upon the fighters. I know that's uh, one of the topics I really wanted to talk about. It really included in my outline, um, but I'm glad that the conversation drifted there. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's talk about the psychology and philosophy of metal a little bit. Um, kind of a. I, hopefully, we're a few beers in that we can relax <laughs> and chat about it a little bit. Um, so what I've noticed, you know, being a musician within metal, you know, aspects of my own self and uh, a lot of people I've worked with, first, you know, in med and um, just interesting personalities throughout metal. Um, the the guys who tend to move mountains have very endogenous personalities. Like they're very inward motivated um, and perhaps they're a little bit high on a neuroticism scale. Um, I know Isaac Newton was highly neurotic. He just is a recluse, but he's considered one of the world's best geniuses. And I know uh, we casually had a conversation the other day where kind of want to touch upon like Varg um, from being like a creative genius and black metal to a meme. So what's your take on like uh the metal psychology for you know someone like Varg who uh he's able to do all this innovative you know aspects and move mountains to becoming a meme 
um yeah it's, it's it's one of these things that i have given a lot of thought but um it's sort of an ongoing musing of mine i guess but for someone like varg i have to remind myself how young he was when he wrote like the classic burzum albums and that goes for a lot of black metal musicians as well and it's something that i often wonder is like were they moved by something more outside themselves i don't mean that in a kind of spiritual way but sometimes it seems like there was some sort of spontaneous sort of flurry of creativity where they weren't in control of what was going on so if you look at like the first three birds albums they happened in very quick succession but they developed very clear ideas um in a really kind of logical way um right up to sort of you know the post-prison albums and it's something I find very interesting because then I look at like Varg after he was released from prison and the Burz albums he released after that kind of fell flat. And I don't know if it's, I mean, Burz was a bit of an anomaly because obviously there's that period in prison, which obviously affected him in many ways, but it is a common theme that as artists get older, if they have their creative period in their late teens or early twenties, they tend to, either run out of ideas or repeat the same ideas or just go in a completely different direction. And I often wonder if it was spontaneity or whether it was youth um, because albums which have too much sort of premeditation behind them. It's like, I'm going to write an album of X kind of music tend to tend to fall flat. Yeah. I can, I can see that from a metal perspective. Like there's just a lot of, you know, fertile, innovation early on when musicians are young you see it with morbid angel you see it with bursum um immortal all those bands emperor um where they they wrote a lot of their best material when they were very young and hungry but as time progressed you know their their music output you know kind of waned they changed styles or just repackaged the same thing over and over like varg um well the he kind of branched out in a lot of different ways he's an interesting character but uh um so it's kind of uh, the uh, I'm trying to draw the correlation here. It's in my mind. Um, I, I kind of think like a metals middle brow where you, you have your instances where there's a, very, a lot of youthful expression coming out in music and being at a genius level, um, like with the early black metal or early death metal and it waning over time but you look at classical music it's the complete opposite the older these musicians and you know artists became the better their music became and i know it's quote-unquote highbrow so i kind of draw this correlation like uh metal's very youthful and it's middle brow compared to classical that's highbrow if you kind of um, get what i'm saying yeah i get so i get it in a literal sense but i also think that um for younger metal artists, this isn't so true now because sort of the internet allows, you know, kids access to all of music history at the click of a button. But especially in like the late 80s, early 90s, it felt like they were just crafting music almost from thin air. Like they'd listen to Slayer, maybe a Baffery album, and then they just said, I can do that. And then, you know, that's how you get a Transylvanian hunger or whatever. Um, whereas as they get older and assimilate more um, influences over the years, like Enslaved is a classic example, who released some fantastic albums early on, but the more they grew up and they started listening to prog rock and stuff and they tried to 
absorb that into their sound. And for me, at least, it completely fell flat. Um, Dark Friend's another one where the older they get, the more they want to just reference old school 80s metal. And it's sort of, it's uh, it's like a facsimile of old school stuff. And I'm not really sure why it exists. Um, whereas when these artists were younger, they were very much just, you know, carving their own path, um, doing, they didn't know the rules so much. They didn't know, you know, the conventions of music theory so much maybe, or where, what they were trying to say, but it worked. And obviously, they were hungry. Yeah, we remember, that's a, remember those out oh, sorry go on yeah they're hungry too back then um so they wanted to make a statement and it seems like after they made that statement they just kind of just stayed within that realm and didn't really try to you know exceed what they have already done um and it was kind of like dark throne for instance it just became references of other things yes and you mentioned classical music i think one of the reasons the the reverse is true in classical music is because because of the amount of like music theory and traditions that a, a classical composer learns in their youth, it takes them years of sort of study and honing their craft to sort of figure out their own voice within that history or tradition. Um, they have to sort of know all of the you know history leading up to that point and learn all of the rules in order to start bending them and breaking them um, in a way that isn't necessarily true for metal or at least you know metal of certain standards where you don't need to learn you don't need to study music full-time for years to start a metal band or whatever yeah something i noticed with metal versus classical too is that it's very escapist music you know it's very powerful you can tell the people are bored of the mundane aspects of reality and they kind of go into like this mythic type of imagination where they want to escape the the world that's in front of themselves and just go into these other forms, uh, very abstract forms, and channel that and create music, at least, you know, the early stuff. Um, so it's kind of interesting that there's that aspect of metal um, versus, you know, classical, where, you know, these classical musicians and composers, they would refine their music over and over and over into something better and better and better. Like you look at Anton Bruckner, um, his later symphonies are his best. Um, look at uh, Wagner. He wrote The Ring in like 20 years. It took him like 20 years to write The Ring. And that was like the second part of his life that he did that um, after he had a failed symphony and all that, which I can kind of see that correlation that he made that he could probably learn music theory a little bit better and understood classical better the order he was. Um, but... I don't know, like metal, like I, I consider it middle brow. Um, it has references to high brow things where, you know, with the lyrical content and all that, but I always kind of consider it as a youthful type of music, not like pop or rock or anything. It's definitely separated from that, but I, I consider it like all the innovation that happened in it was from very youthful individuals. Yeah. Um, in the context of sort of music as a whole, and if you're you know including classical music in that, I think it's it is probably fair to say it's middle brow. But if you take contemporary music on its own, like there's certain genres that I think do reach for something more. Metal is one of them. Uh, some form some forms of ambient, some forms of progressive rock as well. That kind of they go beyond what we'd consider as contemporary music, as in like a you know generic pop rock format. And I think 
when I'm speaking to friends that are music fans that aren't necessarily into metal and they just, they listen to an album like, like Effigy of the Forgotten or something like that. Um, there's, they just get bored of hearing the same guitar tone over and over and over again. And they say like, what's the appeal of this? It's just the same song over and over and over again. It's like, well, I'm listening to how the riffs connect up. I'm listening yeah, to the riffs and all that. And how, yeah, I'm listening cool. to the rhythms and uh, yeah. And all, all of these things connecting up. I'm not necessarily interested in the timbre. I'm interested in the compositions themselves. And I think that's something that is missing from a lot of modern metal where they're trying to incorporate a lot of different symphonics and different sounds and different influences. And there's nothing wrong with that per se at all. Like I think expanding metal's boundaries is a good thing, but I don't think we should lose sight of the actual goal here, which is sort of the raw composition. If your raw composition doesn't sound good on an acoustic guitar or a solo piano, the kazoo thing. Yeah, if it doesn't at least sound interesting on that, then everything else used to enhance it is just sort of, you know, window dressing. But like I've heard, what was it? Those MIDI recordings of old Burzum tracks. And it sounds like hokey and silly, but it's still interesting compositions yeah. because they hold up regardless. There's a, of this Burzum symphony thing now, if you've ever heard that. Um, it's really silly, but it's, it's interesting. <laughs> oh, yeah. I but saw as, a that. Piece of music, as a piece of music study, it's interesting as well. Yeah. So uh, a couple things more about like the psychology of metal musicians. We talked about Varg from being a creative genius to kind of a meme a little bit with the post-prison albums. Um, one thing I noticed is like, this isn't the rule, of course. There's a lot of individuals who come from this background and they have a hard time with life. But I noticed like some people who come from broken homes um, like with no father figure or father figure isn't around that much. They kind of like for guys, at least I think guys need, you know, that father figure early on in their life for their development. There's kind of like this always having to prove themselves mentality. Um, Vince McMahon from uh, WWE is a good example of that. Um, his father wasn't around much and um, he was able to take over his father's company and, you know, change the world of wrestling, um, quote unquote. Um, and Ric Flair is also another instance of that where he didn't he came from a broken home and he was able to become the biggest pro wrestler um trey asagoth is the same like he came from a book broken home and created some of the best death metal ever so i kind of think that you know it's, it's gonna be a mixed bag of you know individuals coming into the fold and creating very innovative music but it's kind of interesting that uh i think um, perhaps like if someone has a turbulent upbringing that they might have to prove themselves to themselves even more. Um, and it may actually push them into uh, such an area where they're actually able to move some mountains like uh, the individuals I just mentioned and uh, you know, other people in metal. So what are your kind of thoughts on that about like uh, psych psychology of, you know, like Trey Azagoth in that instance? It's an interesting one. Um, I would, I wouldn't sort of, I'd hesitate to go too deep into the psychology of someone like Trey. Like I know he's a very, he's a very thoughtful guy, and it, you know, to this day is you know, sort of really, really well respected musician. Um, I think, particularly for a band like Morbid Angel, 
um, what must have been hard is them becoming not just like, you know, in terms of quality, like us as sort of serious metal fans, you know, talk about their classic albums as some of the best death metal albums going, but they're also one of the most popular as well. Like people that aren't necessarily familiar with metal have heard of Morbid Angel. Um, and to go from that to the direction that Morbid Angel took latterly, like I sort of felt for them, um, not because I felt that the albums that they released should all be respected, but more because they had such a kind of visceral rejection from their fan base that I think that must have taken its toll on not, you know, not just Trey, but also David Vincent as well. It's just, um, I think sometimes people go a bit overboard if a band missteps uh, and, you know, get a bit. Yeah. Domination seems to be that period where a lot of people turn their back on them. Um, But what I heard with that is that uh, there was a lot of problems with that album to begin with. Um, I heard that David Vincent just wrote all the lyrics right there the same day in the, the studio. And, Trey was really, really unhappy with the production on that album. It was too sterile, is what he said. Um, but yeah, I can kind of see what you're saying. It's like it's kind of disheartening when you know you you breach, you know, into the unknown. You're able to pull it off so freaking well, move mountains or whatever you want to call it, mm. and then have your fan base reject you after that. With uh I think they wanted like the at least David Vincent at least wanted to become very commercial. And they saw the success of Covenant and saw like money dollar like dollar signs, and wanted to keep pushing that. But I can definitely see that uh, that being disheartening um, for creativity might stem that. Um, But also look at Formula's Fatal to the Flesh. Trey actually tapped into some of his earlier material on that album, such as uh, Hell Spawn, which he wrote with Browning. back during the abominations and desolations day days and uh some of that yeah. material is very good on formulas so there was like this rekindling of his vision after he got yeah. rid of uh david vincent yeah and on gateways to annihilation as well i i hold that album in quite high regard as well and um yeah you're definitely right he kind of brought back the classic kind of approach to you know, very angular, very complex kind of uh, riff structures and stuff. Um, but, I mean, I feel like something like Trey, because he I, he comes across as quite sensitive in interviews. He's quite sort of thoughtful, not very sort of um, of himself or anything like that. And I was just, con- again, contrasting it with Varg, where of all the missteps that Varg has made over the years, I'm not sure he gives a, gives a shit, to be honest, because he's more of a, he's much more like, arrogant and also you know hesitate to say he comes across as a bit unhinged sometimes as well so yeah. i don't think he's really bothered with well yeah he, he, what the fans think. Death. he killed somebody <laughs> well exactly yeah but i mean even even more so now uh obviously like his youtube channel got taken down a few years ago and um it, it's because he's so just comically um like not just, you know, not just because he's a sort of arrogant racist, but also just so comically off himself. And I don't think he's really attuned to what the fans think of his music. Whereas someone like Trey, I think, really does kind of take that feedback to heart. Yeah, I can see or at least that. that's what I think anyway. I, I think Varg used to be very sensitive. Um, that's probably what happened with him killing Euronymous. 
Um, he was probably way too sensitive and neurotic, um, which I think neurotic neuroticism is good at low levels. Um, I think it helps creativity. Um, speaking from oh, a definitely, but when it comes to uh, high levels of it, you get shit like Euronymous being dead and stabbed to death fifty <laughs> something times. I take another example would be um, Celtic Frost because Thomas G Warrior. Uh, when they released Cold Lake, he obviously, like, he swears that album off now. He doesn't want anything to do with it, and he probably despises it more than most of the fans. What about Prototype? You ever hear Prototype? Didn't hear Prototype. There's some rap on Prototype. Yeah, I think that one. Yes, that one is not canonical, right? <laughs> yeah, don't and- listen to Prototype by Celtic Frost. Well, I tried to listen to Cold Lake not that long ago, and aside from it being like flat, dull, like heavy rock, it's just his vocals that ruin it, and the lyrics. Like, oh yeah, it's not the worst album I've ever heard, but it's no, pretty it's terrible. Crotch rock, that's all it is. Like they listen to Wasp a few times, like yeah, yeah, this, we can do this. So what? What I love about Celtic Frost is another individual that I would kind of put into a lot of youthful expression and being very sensitive like uh, Trey and, you know, Varg, um, his riffs are very different. Like, they're very simple, but like Fenris said, it's like putting a sweater on inside out. It's kind of like how his riffs are formed. So it's very cool music. I know uh, a lot of bands, you know, in extreme metal drew inspiration from Celtic Frost, Obituary being one of the prime examples. And I would even say like uh, Samael on Blood Ritual, was very influenced by Celtic Frost. So. Oh, yeah, definitely. I guess your riffs are kind of on the threshold between the, the previous phase of metal and um, the extreme one. Even the, not just the riffs, but um, even the thematic content, you know, the, their themes and the, what they were, the atmosphere. Well, didn't you um, do a, a riff analysis for them not that long ago? Oh, yeah. On yeah on, um, to be honest, I don't remember what was the song, but it was from To Megatherian. Hmm. But yeah, they're another one where, um, yeah, Thomas G. Warrior comes across as very thoughtful, very kind of uh, sensitive to his music. And the fact that they released a yeah, glam rock album is just so out of character. And I know that he, he begged the record label to release it under a different name and not Celtic Frost because he knew how it would come across. But by then it was too late. And I yeah, again, I just feel for him because it's not like he was trying to I don't see him as someone that was trying to sort of cynically cash in. I think it was more just a, a giant misstep that he risk, wishes he could erase from yeah, history. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, Tom's Warrior, sometimes he, he sounds like downright self-punishing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's very kind of, yeah, down on himself sometimes. I think, I think uh, all the individuals we mentioned are very Byronic, too. Yeah, sort of... Um, very tragic characters in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. Cool, cool, cool. So that was the first time I threw out some successive cools, which means we're moving <laughs> on to another subject. Um, so one thing about uh, metal musicians and metal in general is that uh, head headbanging increases blood flow to the brain. Um, powerful music releases endorphins. Um I'm kind of getting back into that psychology. Um, I know Eric Rutan from uh, Morbid Angel, Hate Eternal, and Ripping Corpse and all that. 
he said that metal helped him channel his aggression into a productive hobby that he'd probably end up in jail without metal. So uh, I think that uh, it's a great conduit for people wanting to release energy or aggressive energy outside of the mundane world. Like these guys, some of them, like with Eric Rutan, with that statement, he could have ended up, you know, getting in a lot of trouble. I guess one of the one of the most obvious appeals of uh, of metal for people who are on the outside is the the catharsis, you know, the the cathartic effect. Right. Yeah. That release. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's definitely something that I like. I sympathize with. I was just thinking in terms of like present time. It's it's not something I've consciously missed, given that we're not going to any shows at the moment. But it's definitely. A feeling that I want to recapture when when I do get to see some bands again is you know after a few beers with just that very loud loud intense sort of very dense sound um, you don't really get it from other forms of live music in the same way. Hmm. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. Like I just remember being like a uh, twelve years old and listening to Obituary for the first time and how much that blew my world. And like I'm a ver very visual thinker where I just saw all these layers upon layers of sound on each other. And I just loved, you know, death metal back then. And you know, I still do now, but, you know, I branched into classical and things like that. So let's uh, move on to a few more topics and uh, we'll wrap up the podcast. Um, who are some of your favorite philosophers? Um, hmm, this is a, Tough question, because the first thought I have is uh, Nietzsche, um, but my relationship with him has been sort of on and off over the years. Like I said, I, I read him as a teenager. Um, I didn't study him formally at university, and then I had a massive gap, and then I've reread him again uh, maybe five or six years ago. Um, and his ideas on, um, particularly in The Birth of Tragedy, when he talks about, uh, you know, the Apollo and... Dionysian kind of dichotomy it does sort of bleed into some of my thinking on metal in particular if we're talking about say Apollo being sort of death metal when we're sort of looking at mathematical riff structures and how they all fit together and Dionysus I see as much more of a black metal kind of quality and that it hits me at more of a, a gut level and sort Dionysus of Dionysus was the uh, god of art and wine correct yes Yes, chiefly wine as well. So it's kind of like a losing your rational sense of self to this kind of revelry. And that is sometimes how I feel when I listen to uh, quality black metal. But um, all it was about order. So you see yeah. order in death metal. I know it sounds weird because people don't normally think of order when they think of death metal. But when I picture sort of some of the best death metal albums, they do have an incredibly ordered structure and logic to them that um that i just yeah it kind of hits me at a more intellectual level in that way very cool uh what about um, some other philosophers um so i do enjoy uh schopenhauer but i i read the world as will and representation many years ago now i haven't revisited it since i like but... his metaphysics but i hate his personality his pessimistic outlook um but i love his metaphysics 
I mean, yeah, I don't necessarily agree with it. Yeah, the, the, pe- the pessimistic conclusions that he draws, but he is a very quotable philosopher. Um, and again, Nietzsche took a lot of influence from him, not just in terms of... Well, his whole metaphysics was kind of derived from Schopenhauer. Yeah. yeah the will. The, yeah, the will to survive and to the will to power. Yeah. Uh, but not just on that level, but also just on like stylistically sort of the writing of aphorisms of just like, it's as if they have their desk covered in post-it notes and they just sort of splurge them out on the page with not much structure to them. And you can just sort of, you can read the text as a whole or you can just pull out these quotes at random that kind of just cut to the heart of certain matters. Um, yeah, and they both have a very strong persona, you know, that it seems like they, they consciously produce it. I'm not sure if that makes sense. Yeah, no, definitely, yeah. Um, and that's actually one thing I enjoy about their writing more, like, having studied philosophy formally you're told to kind of eliminate your personality from the writing for the sake of like argumentative clarity which is good advice and it comes through in a lot of like modern philosophy journals that you read but I also kind of sometimes I think well it should be fun there should be a bit of whimsy to philosophical writing as well and so many philosophers don't really have that they don't they're not sort of just poking fun at ideas in a way that Nietzsche would, he's very playful with his writing in a way that really appeals to me. Yeah. There's, like, there's some hidden I am dynamite, there. for example. Yeah, there's, <laughs> exactly. There's a lot of hidden, <laughs> hidden references in Nietzsche too, for people to uncover um, if they're ever interested in his philosophy, but it's kind of interesting. Like Nietzsche as a philosopher, he draws in people from the left and right from the political spectrums, and they all say he's an influence on them. Like Barack Obama said Nietzsche was one of his favorite authors, but you also look on the right side, you see a lot of uh, people on especially the far right saying that uh, Nietzsche is one of their influences, which I kind of think stems from uh, Nietzsche's uh, sister appropriating his philosophy in a way that wasn't meant um back you know before world war ii and all that but uh all right um so schopenhauer nietzsche what in descartes um Uh, yeah descartes um who else um so i did a this was like a really sort of short module i did in my third year and it was called philosophy of technology and um it brought up a lot of thinkers that aren't necessarily philosophers but they kind of sit on the on the periphery so we studied you know people like Marx and people like Heidegger as well but there was another thinker from the 1960s that came out called Lewis Mumford who was really interested in city planning but he was also very interested in um what he called the mega machine and he used to because he was writing in the 60s it's like the height of the cold war where people were thinking that science was kind of running amok with, you know, nuclear weaponry and, um, you know, the Cold War paranoia. But he was writing and he drew a comparison between this kind of thinking and um, ancient Egypt, where he spoke of how, you know, the building of the pyramids was this almost like this massive machine in a way where they took all of these slaves and they forced them to create these huge structures for worshipping a sun god. And he draws lots of interesting comparisons between that and, you know, the creation of nuclear weaponry and the space race and stuff. I'm not explaining it 
I'm not really doing him justice at all, but he is, he's worth uh, reading just because it is Sounds such interesting. interesting comparisons. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, definitely have to check that out later. Um, mm-hmm. So we're, we're nearing the end of the podcast, and I've literally drank six beers during it. <laughs> I've had a great time talking to you. Um, so a couple of light notes that we'll end the podcast on. So uh, what are some of your all-time favorite bands? Um, well, we've touched on Burzum, which is probably sort of the archetype of uh, black metal for me. Um, obviously, I'm a huge fan of the other Norwegian bands as well, but uh, that kind of that almost goes without saying. Um, in terms of outside of Norway, I would say Summoning as well, uh, just for doing something very different with black metal, and they've. They've had a huge influence on a lot of bands recently, not least in the dungeon synth kind of area as well. Um, in the death metal camp, you know, we've, so far. yeah, we've we've mentioned a lot of you know the classics already. Um, I would also sort of call out, say, Therian's first couple of albums. Beyond Santorum is probably one of my favorite death metal albums. Mine too. Mine too. I love that one. Yeah, um, it's a real. Shame the direction they took later, but uh, I love the uh, instrumental song on that album. I forget the name of it, but it's good. I also like that yeah. song very much, especially. I remember one of the one of the songs that um, I like it in particular was "Symphony of the Dead." Yes, that has a, again that has a kind of it almost goes into like typo negative territory in a way, but it meshes it <laughs> yeah. with you know European death metal. Um, I think it um, showcases their narrative. Um, Songwriting very well, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mentioned typo negative. It's like that, more or less. Yeah, it's this really interesting mix of like um, sort of aggressive, almost like sometimes it almost sort of bleeds into grindcore, but then it has this you know neoclassical kind of overtone to it that is really interesting. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I wish they could have expanded on that in recent and subsequent releases, but uh, wasn't to be. Um, I also really love Bahira as well. I love Right Down the Moon is probably um, yeah, one of my to, favorite black metal albums. Yeah, I talked to Marco a couple of years ago, and he actually wanted me on some new project, or I think it was Bahira about me doing a piano piece for him, but um, lost contact with him for a little bit. It never happened. So, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely love Bahira. Um, I, I would yeah. have him on the podcast, but his English isn't that good. Oh, <laughs> a pity. I would say I also really like Behirit. I would say in terms of atmosphere, they're probably among the the very best in all of metal. I think. Oh yeah, like really uh, extremely unique uh, atmosphere. Really, like I would say, like a Transylvanian funeral. Like he taps into the same Behirit vein. Like very simplistic music, but very catchy and well done, and you know easy to listen to. There's no frills in it. I love that about Behirit. You know, other bands of that ilk. So, uh, last question for you, Shelley. Are you ready? I'm ready, yeah. What's some of your favorite music outside of metal? Uh, I knew there was a possibility you'd ask me this question. Um, it's interesting because... Uh, so I got into music via sort of heavy rock. So my all-time favorite band when I was a kid was Queens of the Stone Age. And I really got into them and I got into Caius and I still have a sort of real soft spot for that kind of desert rock thing, like bands like Yawning Man, 
um, Masters of Reality, um, that kind of, it has a kind of Americana undertone to it, but it's it's also weirdly atmospheric at times. Um, outside of like guitar music, I really love Tangerine Dream and all of the side projects that split off from that in the sort of Krautrock field. Um, and I also do, I love a lot of classical, like I play piano nowhere near to the standard of Goatcraft, but as a hobby. And oh, I just... This, this- um, a whole nother subject just opened up. <laughs> um, what are what are some of your favorite classical composers? Just like what well, periods or whatever you want to talk about classical. I'm on board. <laughs> I so my head likes the Romantic era, but I find it quite um, challenging. I think I'm more veered towards um, classical, particularly of what I try and play. So I'm more of it to sort of Bach and that kind of... Well, classical you know. is like Mozart and Haydn yeah. and I would say yes, you know, Bach is Baroque. Unless he's Baroque, but... Um, yeah, it's considered Baroque. CP or CE Bach or whatever his son's name was a, a catalyst for classical. The classical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm more veered towards um, that kind of stuff when I'm playing because the sort of as you move through the 19th century, it gets a lot more uh, challenging to kind of approach that from because I'm I'm not a beginner, but I am a you know very kind of casual player. I don't play often enough to sort of any kind of standards. So it's more just me trying to find pieces that these people have written that are interesting enough, but also approachable from a you know an amateur perspective. And Bach is very good. Oh yeah, so that is like I find two Bach way patients. easier to play than Beethoven. Like Beethoven, yeah. you actually have to have some dexterity on your fingers, but Bach is very linear with uh, how you approach like piano and organ. Um, but yeah. what, what do you like to listen to, like for classical? For classical, I um, I love Chopin. I love Schubert. I really, you know, it doesn't really need saying, but I do love Beethoven as well. Um, I could listen to him all day. Um, more recently, like I had a big break from classical music, but I've been getting massively into it again this year and I've been going more 20th century. So I've been trying to sort of broach like Stravinsky. I actually really got into Eric Satie as well recently. And he's another one that's, he's good to play for beginners because his pieces are much more sort of atmospheric. They're not so complex and, uh, you can kind kind of take the French composers is either too many notes or too few. So <laughs> with Sati, you can kind of, you can approach it at your own pace. And even if you're playing it very, very slowly, it still, it still makes sense. Whereas when, when you approach a piece of romantic music and as a beginner or someone that's not familiar with it and you have to play it slowly, it doesn't really make sense until you can pick up the tempo. Whereas Sati, I guess, you know, it's almost like doom in a way, some of it. You can just do it very slowly and it's kind of droning, but very sort of satisfying. I can see that. Well, yeah, well, some people say that Satin was uh, one of the main influences of ambient music, and you can see that very easily. Yeah, right? definitely. I didn't know that. Very because it's like um, he offers, he doesn't do, you know, sort of narrative sonata form or anything. He more just offers like hints or ideas that strike a mood, um, yeah, more about the mood. Uh, yeah, they're not complex musically, but mm. yeah. What What do you think about like uh, Anton Bruckner? Um, I've not really listened to much of him, to be honest. I will do after you've mentioned him a couple of times. Yeah, um, I'm gonna, but, I'm yeah. gonna throw some Bruckner your way. 
Um, I think he's the most metal composer ever. Um, the fourth, eighth, and ninth symphonies are musts for anyone who claims to be a metalhead. Um, I really like the seventh as well. The seventh is good. Is that one? Well, the third was dedicated to Wagner, but the seventh has a very Wagnerian feel to it. I mean, all the symphonies have a Wagnerian feel, but that one especially. Um, yeah, and the second movement that. is really slow and really... Uh, yeah, everyone kind of- loves the second movement of the seventh symphony by Anton Bruckner. Um, so... I'll have to check that out. Yeah, um, we'll um, send you some things to check out after this podcast because, you know, I became obsessed with metal when I was a kid. But I would say in my 20s, I was completely freaking obsessed with classical. And I was drawn to like the more metal aspects of classical. Um, so I think I have good insight into uh, sharing some works that you'll enjoy um, from that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, just before I forget as well, this takes us massively on topic from classical, but you're asking about what I like outside of metal. Uh, and one of the main, this might come as a surprise to some people, but one of the main genres I do enjoy outside of metal is uh, 80s Gothic rock. So like a, <laughs> Fields of the Nephilim, Sisters of Mercy, stuff like that. I'm a huge fan. Well, Varl also like a God yeah. Rock, if I recall correctly. Didn't he? Who did, sorry? Uh, Varg, I think he, he also like a, The Cure and things like that. Yeah, that sounds familiar now. And there is, a, there is a kind of connection there with like Early Dead Can Dance, which is very goth rock, but then they, you know, they went on a much more... Oh, I really love kind of Dead Can Dance but, as well. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's one of my chief pleasures outside of like the metal sphere, which obviously makes Typo Negative one of the perfect bands for me. But <laughs> I saw something about Varg being influenced by like 80s Russian Cold Wave, which, you know, the, the goth scene was at its peak back then. So uh, yeah, it's interesting to draw that correlation. I think it honestly makes sense. It's something that, um, that yeah, you can clearly see it if you think about it. Yeah, and you hear it on... You know, obviously, like, again, going back to Celtic Frost, there was quite a big influence there. And it does bleed through into a lot of black metal artists because, again, goth rock, you know, some of it's, you know, tacky, uh, as with any genre, but a lot of it is very immersive and atmospheric in a similar way to some of those elements of darker metal as well. There's kind of a, there is a good, a lot of crossover there. Exactly. Plus a lot of the same preoccupations, I, I'd say. Yeah, definitely. Excellent, excellent. So uh, thank you both for being on the podcast, Shelly. You've been a delight to talk with. Um, I'm sure I'll talk with you later. Um, just a recap, Shelly can be reached at hatemeditations.wordpress.com. Um, that's his metal website where he has an, a very objective take on writing about metal. I highly recommend it for everyone interested in, you know, stuff outside of PR statements from bands where you actually have a objective an- analysis of what is presented in the music. Um, Shelly's number one for that. So it's great to have you on the show, Shelly. Yeah. Thank you very much for uh, having me on. And thanks to both of you. It's been a, it's been a great chat. Cheers for that. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you, Raphael.
Nein!